welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 25. And we are officially making Counterpunch Radio history here today, ladies and gentlemen. And I say that with about 95% facetiousness, but it is true in the sense that up to this point, I have not yet had a repeat guest. But this week, I am very fortunate to have one of the first guests from this show when we first started doing it low those many months ago. Um, Ajamu Baraka is with me today. Um, Ajamu is a friend of mine, I think first and foremost. Um, he is an amazing uh, political analyst and, and writer and activist. The uh, the U.S. Human Rights Network, of course, you can find his work on Black Agenda Report, on Counterpunch regularly, all over the place. Uh, Ajamu Baraka, welcome back to Counterpunch Radio. Uh, I'm so happy to be with you again, once again, Eric, because you, you are you my, my leader, and, and you always have a whole lot that I, I, I learn. Oh, don't say leader. We are, we are horizontalists. We in leadership and centralized. Uh, anyway, you get, you get what I'm going with that. I got you. All I right. Um, now, I'm just, I'm just being a little bit of a jerk here to start. So look, we got uh, so much going on, Ajamu, that so much that I didn't even do my usual pitch for Counterpunch because, I mean, Jesus Christ, look at what's happening in the world right now. We are talking here on Wednesday, November 25th, uh, just about 36 hours after Turkey shot a Russian jet out of the sky. Uh, still some conflicting information, but I think a picture is becoming a little bit more clear about what happened. I guess we can get into some of the details. We can get into the regional politics, the regional dynamics, maybe see where you and I agree. Perhaps maybe we disagree. Um, but just give me your initial impression uh, when you heard about that incident. What did you think and how do you perceive uh, the significance of what's just happened? Well, when I first heard about it, I, I really couldn't believe it. I, I know that we are dealing with uh, amateurs um, uh, in the U.S. Uh, and, in, and in Turkey, uh, but I didn't uh, believe that they would go that far. Uh, the very fact that you had the shoot-down and you had the uh, quote-unquote amateur uh, footage that seemed pretty professional to me uh, it all smacked of a uh, intentional provocation, um, and it it, it 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 was, you know, it it it, it, it just struck me how dangerous these folks uh, are because they appear not to understand history and understand the 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 gravity of the forces at play and how easily these kinds of of incidents can can spin out of control, so for them to 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 risk an escalation of this sort with the the only uh, with, with the with a, a major nuclear power, uh, it is it, it it was is the the total expression of the kind of irrationality that we see driving uh, policy uh, throughout the Western world. No doubt about it. I want to return to that uh, that issue, the historical uh, significance here and what history can teach us. I want to return to that in a few minutes, but I want to try to zero in on the Syria question and uh, what the, the real significance here, because 
Um, on the one hand, you have Turkey shooting a Russian jet out of the sky. Turkey has now admitted uh, that the Russian jet uh, cre- did an incursion into Turkish airspace for a grand total of 17 seconds. It mm. now it seems that it's now confirmed that the jet was actually shot down in Turkey. Uh, excuse me, in Syrian airspace after having left Turkish airspace after that 17 seconds. Um, and uh, moreover, what One point that I just want to add here, and I want to get your take on it, no one really talks about the fact that Turkey has artificially created a five-kilometer buffer zone along that border, wherein Turkey is more or less acknowledging their right of sovereignty over uh, Syrian space in this uh, border region. So the very fact that the Russian jet was uh, flying through that region, which is precisely the region where the Islamic State, where Al-Nusra Front, where a lot of these terrorist groups are based, where they're operating, where their weapons are coming from, where the oil is being uh, uh, funneled from Syria and into Turkey. Uh, Operating in that region is obviously in line with what Russia's objectives are. So why would Turkey do this in your mind? And what is the significance of the fact that they've done it? Well, obviously, when we look at uh, these kinds of incidents, you have to determine, you know, or try to determine uh, who benefits from this, yep. and it's clear that the, the 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 state that benefits the most from this kind of confrontation is in fact uh, Turkey, and and the the interests and the the strategic objectives they have uh, in wanting to establish a quote unquote safe zone to expand their uh, their territory uh, aspirations into Syria to provide uh, to be to be to be to continue to have a free hand to support. Uh, the Islamic uh, extremists that they are supporting uh, to uh, dislodge uh, the uh, Assad government. Um, And uh, the Russian intervention uh, has threatened uh, all of those plans. Uh, So with the the attempts to uh, create a sort of a a reconciliation strategy, if you will, between the U.S. and Russia and and the other NATO forces with a concentration just on, on uh, Daesh or, or ISIL, uh, you know, it, it, it suggested that the, the Turkish aspiration uh, was now marginalized or was not going to be realized at all. So for them to create this the, the tension, to, to, to drive a wedge into this, into this reconciliation process uh, made perfect sense. Uh, and they decided they're going to pull the U.S., this is my opinion, along with them on this. I mean, of course, the U.S. Uh, benefits, too, because, you know, there was tremendous pressure being put on these Western powers to, in fact, concentrate on ISIL as a consequence of the of the Paris attacks. Uh, but, you know, with this, this shooting down of this of this jet and the, and, and the subsequent tensions now, uh, I think some of that, some of that pressure has been uh, relieved somewhat. So mm-hmm. this this kind of this this incident it, it it muddies up the waters once again, and it's not clear just how uh, you know how we're going to emerge uh, out of this with with a, with a clear understanding of how the politics uh, are going to uh, unfold. 
Yeah, it's an interesting point that you make, and um, I just I, I wonder about you know this idea of Turkey really benefiting from this because it it sort of it boggles my mind how Erdogan and the uh, his government Erdogan and Davutoglu his prime minister and the AKP the so called Justice and Development Party which is mm-hmm. a Muslim Brotherhood uh, aligned party how they. I mean, is it that they lack the strategic vision? Is it that they don't fully understand the ramifications? Or is there possibly an ulterior motive here? And I'll I'll explain what I'm getting at. Because on the one hand, you can see where they might benefit from uh, trying to make Russia pay a price for destroying this terrorist architecture that the the Turks have been diligently building up since 2011, supporting Mm -hmm. all of these factions, funneling the weapons, all of that stuff. And I guess you could see a benefit there. On the on the other hand, though, look, between uh, the Turkish stream pipeline, which was going to bring Russian gas to Turkey and then into Europe, which was worth billions upon billions of dollars, not even mentioning the transit fees that Turkey would have gotten from that, uh, mm-hmm. between that project and the nuclear reactor project that the Russians were engaged in in Turkey, worth billions of dollars. And then on top of that, four and a half million Russian tourists a year flocking to Turkey, the number one country providing uh, tourists in in and, and driving the tourism industry in Turkey. I mean, are all of these concerns just peripheral to Erdogan? Do they not factor in to his strategic calculus? What do you think of that? Or is there perhaps another angle to this that maybe we're missing that Erdogan is playing? I don't think that he, he I don't think that he decided or he concluded that even with this provocation, that uh, all of those those elements you you mentioned, that they will go out of the window. Uh, I think he understood that uh, what he was trying to do was to reposition Turkey so that they could perhaps continue to pursue their objectives in Syria, um, and at the same time, though, not jeopardize you know those other relationships, very important relationships with with Russia. Mm-hmm. So. You know, in this in this muddy and murky, you know, political environment, uh, you know, this was a this could be perceived by 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 the authorities in, in Turkey as a tactical move that could take out some of the uh, the momentum toward this reconciliation process, uh, and that uh, uh, you know, further down the road, he could reconcile or patch up. Uh, any uh, bruised relationships with the Russians. So it, 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 it could be sort of a win-win uh, calculation. But I, I mean, I guess, but that to me seems <laughs> just ass-backwards logic that is totally flawed. And to me, this strikes me as a monumental blunder, not only a historical blunder, but a complete misunderstanding of the Russian character. Um, the Russians uh, say, you know, for, for better or worse, are fiercely nationalistic, especially when it comes to military matters. And mm-hmm. the Russians are not only is there going to be major domestic pressure now on Putin to, if not completely cut ties with Turkey, then to diminish them significantly. There's going to be major domestic pressure to exact a price from Turkey for this. I mean, this is, I mean, by all definitions of international law and so forth, an act of war committed by Turkey against Russia. So 
is it possible that Erdogan so deeply misunderstands the Russian character and Russian politics, or do you think that perhaps Erdogan is trying to, uh, let's say, push the right buttons in order to create a tension in this situation that allows his policy to flourish? I mean, is that how you're reading this? Well, I, I, I kind of believe, well, I don't, I kind of think that it may be the latter, that uh, uh, he is, in fact, attempting to push those buttons to be able to continue to pursue his strategic objectives, believing or maybe misreading, as you say, the Russian character, um, uh, but believing that he could patch up whatever damage has been done by this this, this, uh, uh, provocation with the Russians further down the road. I mean, as you know, it's pure speculation at this point, but... The fact of the matter is, the they shot down the jet. Uh, there had to be some kind of calculations in terms of what the uh, possible consequences might be. I'm sure they thought about all of these economic factors that you that you referred to, uh, but yet they still uh, they still engaged in that act. So, uh, trying to understand you know this situation is really is really quite difficult. But in the short term, it does seem that uh, uh, you know. It benefited the, 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 the it benefited Turkey. Um, whether or not that's going to uh, pan out remains to be seen. Yeah, I, I guess I just I fail to see how it really benefits Turkey. Um, I think if anything, it provides more ammunition, you know, pardon the pun, but ammunition for Putin to pursue the counterterrorism objective even more vigorously. Because really, to this point, I think we could be fair in saying that the Russians have been, if not uh, restrained, then certainly haven't been going all out with all of their military capabilities. They haven't been uh, really pursuing this in a in a one hundred percent, you know, um, the most vigorous way they could. And I think that this incident allows them to do that and it provides Putin with the necessary uh, domestic political support to do that and actually just you know in in the wake of this just today news comes out that because of this incident the Russians are sending in the S-400 anti-missile anti-aircraft system into Syria now this is a huge development because to this point the Russians have been unwilling to do that and the Russians as of now or I guess up until Yesterday, the Russians had only agreed to provide S-400s to China in the future. Up until that point, no one else had really uh, had access to this. And now S-400s are being placed in Syria. Now, what that means is a major transition in this conflict wherein nobody is going to be allowed to breach Syrian airspace unless it is perfectly cleared with the Russians because they will simply shoot anybody down. And I'm specifically thinking of these Turkish jets who have consistently violated Syria's airspace over and over and over again since 2011. So if anything, Erdogan, even just from the military perspective, has now put himself into a corner because Turkey can no longer provide air support to these terrorist factions that they've been providing air support for, especially in cities like Idlib near the Turkish-Syrian border. It seems that this has now reduced Turkey's potential for true intervention in Syria? Well, I, I will say two things. I think that uh, I, I, I see your point. Uh, but but let's remember that uh, those S-400s 
Um, I don't think that the objective will be to, in fact, uh, enforce a, a, a no-fly zone, if you will, uh, in northern, uh, northern uh, Syria, especially when you have uh, U.S. and NATO uh, aircraft also uh, flying in, in, those, in those areas. So the deployment of the S-400s, uh, it seems to me, is relatively limited to, to protect their, their assets at their, at their military base. Um, I don't think they're going to go that far in terms of, 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 of being prepared to defend uh, completely Syrian airspace. They should, and they will be within, uh, within the law to do that as an invited uh, a military force by the sovereign Syrian government. I, I think that maybe they should have, the Syrian government should have declared a, uh, that they were going to defend the integrity of the airspace, but that didn't happen. Secondly, you know, I, I wonder, Eric, if, you know, uh, I'm, the, the, the Russians are, are being careful uh, in terms of, of, of an all-out effort oh, for sure. uh, in, no in Syria. Because, yep. you know, one of, the, one of the objectives of some strategists in the U.S. Uh, as a consequence of this intervention by the Russians is to try to create a situation where they can, in fact, bog them down in Syria. Yes. Uh, getting them to overcommit. I mean, we're talking about a, you know, a situation where basically the supply lines uh, from, from Russia to uh, Syria is, is, no, is no joke. Uh, so, you know, having to move the, the level of, of the equipment necessary to really engage in a serious military uh, enterprise in Syria is a real commitment, not only in terms of logistics, but also in terms of state treasure. So I think the, the Russians are, uh, are treading very carefully uh, in terms of overcommitting themselves uh, in Syria, because they, I think their objective was to try to move on Daesh uh, and, and, and the other uh, jihadist extremist forces that uh, have been uh, are now you know been, been been created as the so-called moderates who uh, the U.S. and NATO uh, were preparing to take power in Syria, uh, and they wanted to move on those forces and to. Uh, shift the balance of forces on the ground back in favor of the of the Syrian government, and they didn't want to do that. They didn't want to take too long, in fact, in doing that. But with this escalation, this potential escalation, and with a overreaction, uh, you know, they uh, they could be running the risk of getting militarily bogged down in a protracted struggle in Syria. I totally agree with you there. A um, lot more to say. Let's take a quick break. On the other side of the break, I want to continue talking to you about this issue, the shooting down of the Russian jet, what we can expect in the days and weeks and months to come. A lot more to cover with the Jammu Baraka. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Don't mean that I'm faithless Hope based on rational grounds is in the people Socialism's dead, well here's the starting of the sequel Far as I'm concerned, it should be common sense That our current way of life ain't really life to begin with Start of human history will be the very onslaught Of the revolution when this class shit'll stop Or maybe I should say rather kicked in the high gear Capitalist fools will be running off in fear I 
Ideas don't change the world alone People have to do it And with the people's enemies Our struggle must be ruthless Beating down, lied to Often feeling tired But a single spark can start The entire uprising I will never be subservient Trust in their process Truly it's played out as past being monstrous First US revolution was indeed progressive But quickly the star-spangled banner would correctly I'm a socialist, more than just a theorist That means I keep it militant The boss man's nemesis Rep the organizers, nine to five grinders Homeless in the downtrodden, true freedom fighters I'm a socialist, more than just a theorist That means I keep it militant The boss man's nemesis Rep the organizers, nine to five grinders Homeless in the downtrodden, and we're back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Ajamu Baraka. You need to be following Ajamu's work. I follow every single thing that he writes, everything that he publishes, all of his appearances. Uh, fre- you know, get in touch with him on social media. Follow him. Uh, his work is always on Counterpunch, Black Agenda Report, all over the place. Um, Ajamu, you know, there's so many angles to this story, but I want to um, move forward a little bit if we could, and let's focus on what's what's likely to happen in the future because I think that this is really a very interesting question. Now that this has happened, Turkey has shot down a Russian jet. Obviously, Russia, like any country, but particularly Russia, is going to respond in kind. Now the question is, what sort of a response? And I 100% agree with the point you were making before the break that uh, the re- that the response is going to be measured, that the Russians are going to be more or less restrained to some degree, that you know they're not going to go all out I- in terms of escalating this further. However, they are certainly going to strike back. Now, the question is how? Um, so before I sort of give you my uh, sort of thinking on this, I just want to hear... What do you think? I mean, what do you expect Putin to do? How do you expect Moscow to really respond to this? And how do you think it might change the nature of this conflict or perhaps even other issues around the world? I think that the the Russians will continue to target the economic infrastructure of of, of ISIS uh, uh, now. Um, uh, One, I think secondly, they're going to continue with their strategy to degrade uh, the military capabilities of the uh, designated forces, the, the so-called moderates, who we all know are, are primarily uh, extremist jihadists, uh, who uh, the U.S. Uh, and the NATO forces were uh, arming, uh, training, uh, and providing political cover for now. Uh, so I don't see a, a, a major shift uh, in their strategy I don't even see anything that dramatically happening uh, uh, as a consequence of this shooting down of the jet. I think there would be an intensification uh, of the targeting of ISIS, uh, but I don't expect to see any uh, extraordinarily dramatic uh, uh, incident on the part of, of the Russians right now. Uh, I I would agree with you that it's not going to be necessarily a drastic change in terms of what they're doing in Syria. But here's a couple of possibilities, and I mean I'm just throwing them out there. These are things that I've uh, that I've been thinking about over the last 36 hours or so. Uh, number one, 
Um, I, I think it is kind of the norm for especially for Putin and the Russians in general, but particularly Putin to respond in, let's call them asymmetrical or unexpected ways. I mean, he's shown that uh, that this is kind of his M.O. when it comes to a number of issues, including the shooting down of MH17, including, um, you know, the 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 whole Crimea, uh, the the reunification of Crimea with Russia or the annexation of Crimea or whatever terminology people like to use. Um, We've seen over and over again that Putin has acted in this sort of asymmetrical and unexpected way. So one thing I think that Putin might do is he might reactivate the and, and step up support for the rebels in East Ukraine. That conflict has been simmering for a while, and there's a there's a lot of people around the world who feel that if Putin wanted to, he could reactivate that conflict by stepping up support to the rebels in the East by uh, sort of taking the reins off, if you will, and allowing them to actually control more territory, fight back against the uh, the Nazi paramilitaries as well as the Ukrainian military forces to the extent that there's still even a cohesive unit. Um, so there is this Eastern Ukraine question. There is also the question of the Kurds. And I think that Russia has made significant inroads with some of their, um, you know, let's call them their, their, covert relations with the Kurds. This has kind of been, there's been some chatter about that. There is the potential that Russia is going to try to come in with a better deal for the Kurds than the Americans have and try to pull the Kurds out of the U.S. orbit to the extent that they're in the U.S. orbit and particularly stepping up support for the, for the PKK, that's the Kurdish Workers Party, in their fight against Turkey. I think that is one particular thing that Putin could do. And I think also helping some of those Kurds in Syria on their fight against the Islamic State, particularly uh, in the areas north of Raqqa. So these are just two examples of, I think, a number where Putin could strike back in an asymmetrical way that would definitely hurt Turkey and that would clearly uh, degrade the U.S.-NATO objective in Syria and in Ukraine. Well, I, I, I've, I've, I've thought about that and I've read some of the reports that that, that could, in fact, be one of the responses, uh, in, in particular with the Ukrainian situation. That Wait a second. Would... People have written that? You're telling me that wasn't my original thought? <laughs> I think I may, may have read something you wrote. Um, <laughs> oh, okay. oh, come but on. I, I think that uh, – and I think that that, that, that could happen. I, I think, though, uh, again, I, I think it's a very dangerous move at this point. Uh, and I don't see that really happening uh, at this at this point. I do agree, though, that uh, there is a real possibility that because of the increased influence that the Russians now have uh, with the Syrian government, that uh, uh, Assad is going to have to be con- uh, persuaded. And I think he's already he already may have been persuaded that in order for him to be able to uh, maintain power in Syria. He's going to have to cut a deal with the Syrian Kurds. Uh, he's got to accept the fact that, that he may have to allow a, a real degree of self-determination uh, and that uh, in doing that, uh, it would allow for the Russians to completely, to, uh, to in fact sweeten the deal away from the influence of the, of the Americans uh, to provide the arms they need and the support they need to be able to uh, carve out and hold that territory. Um, 
and to, and to thwart the plans of, of, of Turkey and NATO to try to uh, uh, clear as much of that border area as possible so that they can still pretend that there is going to be a safe zone. So uh, I, I can see that part of it. But, uh, you know, again, I, I, I don't really see anything, you know, that, that to me is a relatively subtle kind of, uh, as you say, uh, asymmetrical kind of response. And that, to me, will, will probably be the extent of what we see from the, from the Russians. Uh, yeah, I, I agree, but I do think that there's, you know, there's a couple of, there's a couple of ways of looking at it. On the one hand, undoubtedly the Syrian Kurds are, uh, you know, they, they factor into this equation just as you mentioned, but remember that there are, you know, a, a large number of Kurds in Turkey, many of whom have been, you know, oppressed and in very brutal ways for many, many years, uh, many of whom have sympathies not only for their cousins across the border in Syria, but for a lot of the PKK rebels, a lot of these PKK targets have been, you know, or rather these PKK uh, assets have been targeted by Erdogan's air force. Remember, after the uh, terrorist bombing in Ankara, that was one of the principal uh, reactions from Erdogan was to bomb Kurdish uh, uh, positions. So the question then is, Will Turkey be made to pay a price by Russia fomenting uh, this ongoing conflict, which has been going on for a long time? Because ultimately, and this is obviously taking it to the extreme, but I think we need to examine it. Ultimately, that would be civil war in Turkey if Turkey is forced into a position of waging war against the Kurds as a whole. Uh, that is actually the point that I'm that I'm making. That basically, that would, strategically, that would be a blow to to the Turkish authorities to have uh, the ability of the Syrian Kurds to be able to 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 hold that territory. That 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 increases that increases the power of the entire uh, Kurdish uh, resistance movement. Uh, so. Yeah, it would. It would have to. It would. It would. It would. It would require a response from uh, the Turkish authorities uh, in southern Turkey uh, to try to squash whatever you know the consequence may be in in their territory. But no, it would be. It would. It would undermine their objective to try to uh, undermine the power of the uh, the Kurdish resistance movement. Uh, I mean, it would be. It would be a very complicating uh, consequence for the Turkish authorities, and it would be the. The, the Russian uh, 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 answer to the shooting down of that, of that jet. Yeah, and let me add one other thing to complicate this already complicated picture a little further. Um, it's not just Kurdish rebels that are a problem for Erdogan. It's not just the, the mm-hmm. PKK and these various you know militants and, and what have you. There is a major political struggle inside of Turkey going right. on right now that has been ongoing for a long time. And a lot of the opponents, some of the some of the most vocal, staunchest opponents of Erdogan have been the Kurdish parties as well as those non-Kurdish parties that are considered 
considered having, you know, let's call it pro-Kurdish sympathies. Now, mm-hmm. there is obviously the potential if the Russians really wanted to, to exploit these internal political divisions to erode uh, whatever consensus Erdogan has built up. Remember, I, you know, I wrote a piece uh, in Counterpunch, um, I guess about two months ago called Has Turkey Become a Fascist State? And what I was looking at was the, the, the stoking of these various fascist formations inside of Turkey, including the so-called Grey Wolves, these Turkish supremacist groups who have attacked Kurdish uh, political party headquarters, who have uh, burned Kurdish-owned businesses and attacked Kurdish civilians. This is what Erdogan has been stoking. So I could also see the Russians trying to exploit that inside of Turkey, dividing the, uh, you know, the, the Turkish citizenry and forcing Erdogan into this incredibly difficult political uh, uh, posture. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure how, how they could really exploit that, especially when you see that uh, coming out of the last election, that the, the, uh, the political alignments were such that the, uh, the uh, was HDP, the, the Turkish, mm-hmm. uh, the, uh, the Kurdish uh, uh, exactly. political, that they, 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 their support was diminished somewhat, somewhat as a consequence of the, the, the conflict, the civil war that uh, Erdogan uh, reunited. Um, you know, the, 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 this notion of, of nationalism, of course, cuts, you know, both ways, different ways. So, you, I mean, so, you know, the Turkish nationalism is a very powerful force also. Uh, and so, you know, uh, I don't know where the entry point would be for 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 the Russians to be able to uh, undermine uh, Turkish nationalism. Uh, I don't. I really don't see how that could happen. I don't see how how, how he could how they could exploit uh, those, those 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 tensions right now. Well, I think that there's a number of there's a number of things that they can do, and I, again, what part of this whole discussion is us just kind of spitballing these things back <laughs> right, and right. forth? I'm not I'm not making policy prescriptions for the Kremlin here, you know, but um, I am I I am somewhat um, uh, let's say uh, confident that the Russians have. A lot of contacts in Turkey. They have for many decades. Uh, Turkey was a central player in the Cold War, being that crossroads between the uh, the socialist or communist bloc and uh, the West. Although it was a, it had become a member of NATO, it was always kind of seen as straddling the line between East and West. And the 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 Soviets, going back to the Cold War time, had very deep connections inside of Turkey. Now, I do think that the Russian have maintained at least some level of um, let's let's call it uh, you know foothold inside of Turkey. Now I don't know the extent to which they can really push forward in terms of Turkish politics, but they can certainly support certain groups. They can highlight certain things. For instance, the uh, gross violations of human rights that uh, Turkey has been engaged in with regard to the jailing of journalists, with regard to the persecution of uh, the editor of the Kumhuriyet, the editors of a number of papers, TV stations that have been shut down and 
been attacked by Erdogan. So I think just from a public relations perspective, using uh, Russia's media apparatus, using Russia's political apparatus, I think that they could make it uncomfortable for Erdogan. I'm not saying bring down Erdogan's government, but certainly make for a political uh, difficulty for him. Well, perhaps I, 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 I don't, I don't know. I don't really see that um, at this point. Uh, but I, I guess that's a possibility. I'm, I'm more curious, though, in a way, or I'm, you know, as we look at this, the situation in Syria and this, this last incident with the jet. I'm, I'm curious about how we see U.S. policy. Yes. And to what degree, if, if in, in any way. Uh, you know the U.S. Uh, U.S. interests uh, uh, play play out in the situation. Uh, well, I mean, you know, again, the question the question is, does and this is to your point uh, a little bit earlier, Jamu, that the question really is, do we believe that this incident is going to uh, change either fundamentally or even superficially change the U.S. policy when it comes to Syria, when it comes to regime change, when it comes to uh, quote-unquote counterterrorism operations? Do we think that a fundamental change will happen in U.S. policy? I'm, of course, very skeptical of that. No, I, I am. I am also. And as a matter of fact, I think all this this incident did within within U.S. policymaking circles is to increase the tensions. Um, I think that it, it, it seems to me that there that the, the the predominant line right now is to not to try to do not to do anything uh, risky. Uh, if there was a green light given to this shoot down, then maybe that 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 happened. Uh, but I don't see U.S. decision making uh, unfolding where they're going to move in any way uh, in an overt uh, or aggressive way to try to take advantage of the situation or to inflame the situation at all. As a matter of fact, I think that there are some elements within the U.S. Uh, uh, intelligence apparatus that sees this situation as very, very dangerous. Uh, One would hope so. I mean, I hope that there are some clear thinking people uh, in the U.S. establishment. Actually, this leads me to another question that I wanted to ask you. Um, uh, Look, I've been going back and forth on this issue, and some people have written to me telling me that I'm crazy to say this. But, you know, here I want to pose the question to you because I'm legitimately not sure what to say. Do you believe that there is a divergence in thinking in Washington wherein some factions within the political, military, and intelligence uh, establishment are trying to, let's say, be cautious and possibly even de-escalate and certainly do whatever they can to minimize U.S. involvement in Syria versus another faction that wants to ratchet it up, that wants to increase the tensions and expand the war. Do you think that that such a divide, say, between neocons versus uh, Obama himself or those around Obama, do you think that that divide exists? Or do you think that more or less there remains a, a consensus and that Obama and the neocons are really just kind of uh, a difference in the way that they phrase things. I mean, do you, is that divide real? 
I actually think it is, and I think that um, that's what I've been, I've been arguing that it is. But some people yeah. have disagreed with me. No, it, to, to me, it, it's been obvious that there's been disarray and, and a lack of consensus with U.S. policy in Syria for quite some time, uh, and that Obama was not uh, clear enough or strong enough to resist some of those more uh, reckless elements that that wanted to uh, uh, pursue a regime change uh, in Syria, uh, and he 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 painted himself into a corner. On, on that situation. So, no, I think that there are clearly elements within the, the intelligence uh, and military apparatus that, that would like to see a de-escalation. They believe that, that, this, the, that the strategy, whatever that strategy was to un, undo and, and, and dis, dislodge the Assad government has failed. Uh, it's failed quite uh, spectacularly. So uh, I think that uh, they are trying to back up and they see that, that they are not in a very dangerous situation. But mm-hmm. you do have elements who have uh, still have some influence in the, in the administration uh, and in Congress uh, who uh, are, are adamant in trying to pursue uh, and play out to its logical conclusion uh, their uh, objective to dislodge uh, Assad. And, and I don't, you know, so it's going to take some leadership on the part of the administration the Obama folks, if in fact they see that they have uh, uh, their strategy has failed and that they need to uh, to recalibrate that strategy. Well, so here's the question, because, you know, I, I agree and I've been arguing for a while that there is a divergence. Now, that is not to, you know, place the, you know, the laurels of peace and justice on Obama's head. I mean, he's a warmonger of the first order with, you know, the blood of countless Libyans and many others on his hands. So I'm not, you know, absolving Obama here just to say that I think that Obama is, uh, let's say, a little bit more cautious about, you know, pursuing a truly... um um, you know, uh, belligerent agenda in the way that the neocons are. And let me give two examples of what I mean. One would be a few months ago when David Petraeus went before the U.S. Congress and argued quite strenuously that the U.S. should be arming the al-Nusra front, that is al-Qaeda, in order to fight the Islamic State. That level of escalation and arming of al-Qaeda, which is overt support for terrorism in Syria, that to me is a very neocon uh, position that Petraeus is arguing. And I don't think that elements within the Obama administration would ever acknowledge that publicly. And uh, they, whether they, I mean, they were obviously doing it privately anyway, but that was what the CIA has been doing since 2011. But to acknowledge it publicly as policy, I think is an indication that there is a clear divide in thinking. Now, a second thing that, that um, I think illustrates this point that you're making came out in the New York Times, I believe it was today, John Bolton, you know, John Bolton mm. wrote an article, uh, former ambassador under Bush to the to the United Nations, crazy mm. lunatic neocon, just to remind mm. people, John mm. Bolton wrote in the New York Times that the U.S. policy should be the forceful creation of a Sunni state 
in the Middle East, with a part of Syria, a part of Iraq, and so forth. In other words, the creation of an artificial Sunni state that would de facto be the quote-unquote Islamic state. It would be controlled by a lot of these elements. That is what the neocons are pushing. And to me, that is the kind of policy that Obama is simply unwilling to pursue. And this divergence, I think, is best illustrated by what the neocons are offering on the one hand and the Obama administration uh, going to talks in Vienna, which I don't think the neocons want to see. Mm. Unfortunately for the Obama administration, they 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 are they have forced they have been forced into a position where they almost have to uh, support the establishment of some kind of state like that. They have because they have allowed for the Syrian state to be in essence dismembered, and you have this incredible these, these this incredible amount of of forces with these with these arms uh, who are now in country, uh, and so what do you do with them? What do you even if you decide that uh, Assad is going to uh, remain in power, uh, he is basically going to be remain. Uh, he's going to be in power, uh, uh, controlling in essence a sort of a rump state, if you will. So, what about the other parts of Syria that now are under the control of these various factions? Are you going to continue a military uh, campaign against those factions? Well, and this is this is where we need to bring in the Brookings Institution, the Brookings Institution paper, Deconstructing Syria, June 2015, very recent, uh, in which they, they argued, the authors argued, that exactly what you just described should be the U.S. policy, that they should li- quite literally partition Syria in a de facto sort of way and create these, um, you know, call them ethnically based, sectarian based enclaves, an Alawite controlled territory, Shia controlled territory, Sunni controlled territory, Druze territory, and so forth, that that should be the U.S. policy. And I think that that is charting pretty close to what the neocons have been arguing, what John Bolton is arguing in the pages of the New York Times. Now, I don't see that Obama and the people around him are necessarily 100% against that, but I don't think that they necessarily want to escalate in the way that the neocons do with U.S. troops, with additional special forces, with sending in more weapons and training more fighters and all of the rest of that. That, I think, is where the divergence is. Uh, you, you could be right. You could be right. Uh, but, you know, they have, a, they have a mess with their hands, and, and that, that kind of perspective is, is, is very close to, to Obama because that position that you just uh, uh, shared with us from the Brookings Institute is all the, also the position of, of Joe Biden. Yes, exactly uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you know, they, they are under tremendous uh, pressure now to try to uh, offer uh, a, 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 a post-conflict uh, vision of what that, that, that part of the world will look like. And that is going to be a very difficult one. I think that I think that the, the Russians and I think the Syrian government are clear that for them, uh, rest, main, restoring the, ter- the uh, territory integrity of the Syrian state um, should be the objective. Uh, but that's going to mean a protracted struggle um, beyond just you know uh, dealing with the, the, the ISIL threat because you have all these other uh, uh, elements that uh, may not, that aren't really aligned with, with ISIL necessarily who are armed to the teeth. 
Yeah, exactly. And 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 to your point also, I think that one of the one of the things that that the Americans are fearful of and uh conversely that the Russians desperately want to see is the uh establishment or reestablishment of Syrian sovereignty, the uh re um you know the the, the buttressing or the reestablishment of the institutions of the Syrian state, the political institutions, the economic ties all of the rest of the, the social institutions, cultural, religious, all of that stuff, that that would be maintained in a cohesive way in some with some semblance to a pre-war uh, state. I think that that is what the Russians want. That is what Assad wants. And conversely, I think that that is what the Americans, be they of the Obama uh, administration, be they of the neocons, are desperate to avoid. They want to see the destruction of those institutions in order to remake them in their own image or to the to you know in their own policy shape i think that that is one of the fundamental questions here which is why negotiation in vienna and a political settlement of some kind that is a very interesting avenue for this conflict to take what would a political settlement actually look like and what concessions are the americans and their partners willing to make in all of this uh Obviously, I think one of the concessions is going to have to be dropping this inane uh, chant of Assad must go, coming to some kind of a conciliatory uh, position when it comes to elections and Assad's potential of participating in those elections. I think that that's some of the areas where there's going to have to be concessions. But I do think that that kind of a political process is very frightening to the Americans. I think so, especially if if the if the agreement is to engage in another election and Assad is allowed to to participate, uh, because clearly we saw that there was uh, significant popular support for Assad, uh, and if there is an election, uh, another election, I have full confidence that uh, uh, he will be in fact reelected, and then then what happens? You know, it 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 is a a complete and total. Uh, a mess, and I think you're right. That's what they are really afraid of, and that's why they don't want to see uh, Assad partic- allowed to participate in any uh, reconciliation process um, and with, with with an election being at the center of that process. Yeah, um, I know we're we're running out of time. I'm already keeping you later than I said I would, but I just I want to follow up with with a couple points here, and I maybe this is a little out of left field, and if you don't want. You don't want to address it. You don't have to. But one thing that occurs to me also is with the downing of the Russian jet, this is yet another in a long history of conflict between Turkey and Russia going back to the days of the Ottoman Empire and the Russian Empire and competing for control over the Black Sea. I mean, this is a historical conflict that goes back a few centuries. So... In in some ways, this is almost like a you know a confrontation that could have been expected if you understand that Erdogan pursues what could be called the what they call a neo Ottoman 
strategy, a neo-Ottoman position. In other words, the projection of Turkish power beyond their borders into the traditional, quote-unquote, Turkish sphere of influence. In contrast, of course, Russia is in many ways um, asserting its own power throughout its region, throughout its traditional sphere of influence. So in some sense, we could say that this conflict or this, this incident is in many ways an outgrowth of the rekindling of this age-old imperial conflict, you know, it it it, it, it strikes it, it struck me as very very similar to what we saw in the lead up to World War One. Well, and that's my next point, Ajama. Go ahead. <laughs> that, that, yeah, basically, I mean, you know, that 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 it was that kind of conflict that we we saw help to precip- precipitate the uh, uh, that first imperialist war that these various uh, empires who were, who were clashing. Uh, and, and the interests that they were representing uh, uh, resulted in in, 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 in conflict that uh, resulted in the breakup of the of the Ottoman uh, Empire. But those 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 sentiments, as you as you said a, a few moments ago, they go back uh, to that period and even before between uh, the Turks and and the Russians. Yeah, exactly right. And the last point, and I don't mean to I don't mean to end this conversation on a doomsday note, but um one thing I've talked about, I did it in in a couple of different interviews, I mentioned this point. There is seemingly a a cycle that we can identify throughout history. 1914, we saw the beginning, as you called it, the first imperialist war, uh, obviously referencing Lenin, and I thank you for that. Uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, the the create the the, the um, beginning of the first world war, 1914. 100 years, almost exactly 100 years before that, is the Napoleonic Wars, which for their time was essentially a world war. You had a mm-hmm. continental power in Europe. You had uh, the, the, the British and these various other, uh, rather, I'm sorry, France is the continental power in Europe. The British, of course, and the conflict between them over what would amount to global control, as these were the two biggest colonial powers, the two powers vying for control in Europe. A hundred years before that, 1714, you're talking about the War of Spanish Succession, the conflict between the powerful empires over the remnants of the Spanish Empire in Europe. A hundred years before that is the beginning of the Thirty Years' War. Each of these wars, for their time period, were deemed to be the equivalent of a global global war. The Thirty Years' War, for example, something like a third of Europe was killed in that war. So the reason I bring that up is because we do see historically this seemingly hundred-year cycle of global conflict wherein one power on the decline fights in a war against another power that is emerging. And I wonder, is that relevant to what we're seeing today? The decline of the Western imperial system versus the emergence of the non-Western Russia, China, BRICS, all of these other countries that are emerging, that are in many ways beginning to challenge the imperial hegemony of the United States and this system that it dominates. Are we seeing a repetition of this historical cycle? And is Syria the, uh, the, the, the laboratory or the tinderbox for such a global conflict? 
Well, you know, I, I do. I do think we see, we're seeing the the decline of the the the, the relative power of of, of the pan European project. Um, uh, but I, I don't I don't put uh, I'm, I'm more cautious in terms of, of of looking at what is emerging as a true alternative. Uh, e- even the BRICS process, um, while that those states are important. Um, I, I still see that uh, the emergence of those states uh, happen, happening within the context of a, a, a global world, a, a world capitalist system. Um, and that, you know, uh, uh, it, for me, while we, we, we see the decline in the West, uh, I don't see the alternative being the emergence and the hegemony of, of states that are still committed to a, a capitalist uh, a model of development and capitalist values. So, you know, the, the, so we see that happening. The, 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 the challenge, though, we have is that in this decline, um, it, it, it's become, becoming quite apparent to me that these European powers are prepared to do whatever they think is necessary to try to maintain, try to stop that decline and to maintain their power. And so what we're going to see, I think, in the in, in 21st century is not just, not just a repeat of this kind of, of 100-year cycle that you referred to, but I think we're going to see perhaps almost a 100-year war, if you will. Yes. And it's going to, yes. be a, it's going to make the 20th century look like child's play. I think you're right about that, and I I, I agree with you. I, I will only stress that um, what I'm suggesting is not that you know Russia, China, and the BRICS and the non-Western countries are somehow an alternative to capitalism, but rather that they are a countervailing force emerging in the world that would temper the uh, behavior and actions of an imperial system, which, as we've seen, as the lone globalized system acts in the most barbarous ways, uh, and we don't need to run through all of its crimes here and now, but I do think that to some degree this conflict is already happening, just as you're kind of mentioning here. If you look at if you look at for th- things like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which I know you've been active on, uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership is not merely a trade deal. It is not merely a, a form of corporate hegemony over nation states. I mean, it is all of those things, but it is also an asymmetrical tool being used by the United States to encircle and otherwise isolate China from the rest of Asia and the Asia-Pacific region, at least economically in a variety of ways, to the extent that the United States can do that. Um, The same is true to some degree with Russia, the encirclement of Russia in a number of ways and forcing Russia into a very complicated political and economic position. That is what the United States and its allies are doing, and I think that, uh, to your point, the kind of global conflict conflict that we're seeing is a very different one from what we've seen previously. This is not to say a hot war is not possible, but it is certainly going to be a long war. Exactly, exactly. And, and I, yeah, I think that uh, we, 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 we are seeing something very significant. And, and, and uh, I, I'm hoping that, uh, that uh, the people of the world are going to be able to uh, to organize themselves to, to 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 become 
the, the popular countervailing force. Uh, because what we are going to see in the next uh, a couple of decades uh, will be war and, and more war. Uh, and I'm really afraid of what is going to happen, in particular in the West, uh, with the, the, the real possibility of, of neo-fascism. I don't know to what extent you know, the, the BRICS nations will be a countervailing force to that. I think that this situation with Syria is, for me, the first example of a real uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, ag- aggressive uh, uh, opposition uh, to, 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 to Western hegemony on the part of one of the BRICS uh, elements. I think that we're going to see that the Chinese force to be more aggressive in the South China Sea. Um, you know, so it's going to, you know, but again, we're talking about state um, and, and those kinds of, of activities on the part of those states will take place. I think there will be a more uh, a formalized military alliance, perhaps between the uh, Russians and the Chinese. But again, at the same time that these things are happening at the level of the state, uh, you know, we've got to see the creation and consolidation of people's movements uh, if we're going to if we're going to survive what's going to happen in the 21st century. Well, I totally agree. And final point, I just want to say that. Uh, Maybe we should also add that the potential for uh, disastrous consequences from climate change could, <laughs> could trump a lot of this other stuff. But anyway, we'll have to leave that for another time. I could talk to you for hours. Um, Jamu Baraka, I want to thank you again for coming on Counterpunch Radio for the second time. Listeners, you heard it. The man is brilliant. Follow everything he does. Follow everything he writes. Write him fan mail. Uh, you know, whatever you need to do. Jamu Baraka, give us the website and uh, anything else listeners need to know. Well, I really, I really appreciate this opportunity, Eric. And, and, and I mean, you know, it, 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 these, these interviews are only a reflection of the, of the, of the skill and depth of the, of the interviewer. So I really appreciate Stop that. Stop it. Come on. Uh, so, yeah, and people can read my stuff at, uh, at my site, uh, ajamubaraka.com. Uh, and I write uh, for also for Black Agenda Report. Uh, and counterpunch uh, also. So great. There you go. Thanks. Thanks, Ajamu, for coming on, listeners, as always. And just a programming note I'm not yet sure exactly when these, uh, these upcoming episodes in the next two weeks, uh, well, I guess the next week from when you're listening to this are going to come out. Um, I'm going to be traveling. We shall see. I'm not sure yet, but uh, keep to keep in. Uh, uh, keep an eye out on it on Counterpunch on the website, and uh, hopefully, hopefully, I can produce some more episodes before I go. Anyway, uh, blundering my way through that last statement, Ajamu, thanks for coming on the show, listeners. Talk to you soon. Bye bye. 